The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, happy Monday, everyone. You're watching Squawbox, a very global edition of Squawbox Europe. These are your headlines. Chinese stocks and U.S. futures surge as President Trump and Xi Jinping call a timeout on fresh tariffs and agree to continue talks while Trump softens his stance on Huawei. One of the things I will allow, however, is uh, a lot of people are surprised. We send and, and we sell to Huawei a tremendous amount of product that goes into the various things that they make. And I said that that's okay, that we will keep selling that product. Well, President Trump sharing a historic handshake with Kim Jong-un and agreeing to restart talks as the U.S. leader makes a surprise visit to the Korean demilitarized zone. Oil prices jumping as Russia and Saudi Arabia back an extension of OPEC plus supply cuts, whilst Iran calls for unity amongst member states. Deutsche Bank mulls up to 20,000 job cuts in a major overhaul aimed at turning around the struggling German lender. Right, really good to see you all today. There are so many moving parts to this show, I can assure you. We don't know whether we're going to be off to Vienna next, or Brussels, or Dalian for WEF, or Osaka for G20. So there are so many ingredients I want you lot to take in today, to absorb, to infuse, because it will make for a very interesting set of market moves. Uh, key to our coverage today is though that the US and China say they're going to restart trade talks following a meeting between Presidents Trump and Xi at the G20 summit in Osaka. The U.S. promised to hold off on new tariffs on $300 billion worth of Chinese imports in exchange for Beijing's return to the negotiating table. Mr. Trump also said American companies could continue to sell, as you heard in our headlines, could continue to sell products to Huawei. This is extraordinary. You're hearing all kinds of comments from hawks, policy hawks are concerned about this. Uh, Marco Rubio was on about this one as well. Uh, but a U.S. official was later saying and adding that the decision is, quote, a not a general amnesty for the Chinese tech giants. So whether there's a trade deal, whether there is going to be a truce, whether there's going to be meaningful negotiations, whether Huawei has got a pass or not, everybody is still on tenterhooks. Now, speaking in Seoul following the summit, Mr. Trump hailed the progress made with China. It was a great summit. A lot of, a lot of good spirit, a lot of goodwill. And that brings really... Very importantly, the world leaders together, each to discuss some of the most important economic opportunities and challenges facing our nations. And one-on-ones are very important when you have individual complaints. I'm sure most of you haven't heard, but I met with President Xi of China. I know you didn't hear about that. Uh, but we had actually a very good meeting, a really good meeting, I think. So we're continuing with our uh, discussions on a trade deal. We'll see what happens. Good chance. 
Well, stocks so far have been rallying on the back of that G20 summit and the meeting between President Trump and President Xi. This is the first uh, indication of investors' reaction to the news. We are seeing uh, pretty decent gains in the Shanghai Composite and the Shenzhen. Shenzhen in particular up 2.9%. Worth mentioning, in addition to the G20 summit and the outcome of that all-important meeting, the temporary trade truce that Steve just explained, we also had some manufacturing data come in in China, and it was softer than expected. We had the Kaishin manufacturing PMI come in, uh, showing that the activity in the manufacturing sector shrunk in June. Uh, that was in contrast to expectations of it continuing to grow. So perhaps some expectations of further stimulus from the Chinese central co- government also baked in there, providing a boost to stocks. But overall, a green picture in Asia as the first indication of market reaction to that G20 summit. Uh, now let's take a look at the, the opening calls for Europe and see how this is filtering through to what we may see here in Europe. Very uh, decent gains also poised to come through for European markets. The DAX in particular looking at a 118-point jump at the open. So uh, the in terms of market reaction, it looks as though across the board we're going to see a rally today. The FTSE MIB indicating a 192-point rally at the open. Uh, now moving right along, let's take a look at U.S. futures. We are looking at a jump there as well. The Dow Jones in particular looking at a, a pretty big step, step up. And that, of course, comes after a strong day on Friday as well, where Wall Street closed higher in the lead up to this summit, boosted by financials. So uh, overall, we are looking at a global rally on the back of this weekend's developments. Steve? All right. Thank you very much indeed for that. Let's get out to Nancy, who's covering events uh, surrounding the G20 from Osaka. Nancy. Hi there, Steve. Well, a pretty remarkable few days for President Trump across his Asia tour. But let's kick off with that meeting that he had between President Xi Jinping, as you pointed out with the sound already. He called it a good meeting. He said it went better than he expected. And the important message there is that the talks are back on track. So rather than achieving a grand milestone deal here in terms of working forward on the terms of a trade deal, what we got was a restart. And I think that's critical because even though he's not going ahead on that threat for additional tariffs up to 25% on more than $300 billion worth of goods coming into the United States from China, that certainly is the piece of good news that markets are reacting to today. But he also hasn't removed tariffs on that $200 billion tranche that went into effect in early May after the trade talks did break down. And that is also taking a toll on the Chinese economy, as we've seen in the data coming out of Beijing just today, in fact. So yes, we do have a truce, a restart, if we can call it that. But the thorny issues on intellectual property were not addressed in this meeting. At least President Trump didn't give any information about how the two parties are going to move ahead on that issue specifically. And then the matter around Huawei did cause a great amount of confusion on the ground here in Osaka. I can tell you that in the press conference, President Trump was asked repeatedly about this issue and whether or not the U.S. was prepared to end the blacklist for Huawei, to end, take Huawei off the entity list from the Commerce Department. And he wouldn't say so. He said there's going to be a meeting taking place on Tuesday about the entity list specifically. So let's give you a closer look here at what he did say on Huawei. Take a listen. We mentioned Huawei. I said, we'll have to save that till the very end. We'll have to see. One of the things I will allow, however, is uh, a lot of people are surprised we send and, and we sell to Huawei a tremendous amount of a product that goes into the various things that they make. And I said that that's okay, that we will keep selling that product. 
So there you have it. President Trump in the same press conference saying we were going to leave Huawei to the very end of these trade talks. But then he did comment that he would let U.S. companies continue selling goods to Huawei. And this is causing much confusion back in Washington, D.C., as you point out, Senator Marco Rubio from the president's own party saying if, in fact, the president did make a U-turn on some of those restrictions for Huawei, that he would look to put legislation in the Senate. He thinks it could have a veto-proof majority in the Senate. And I wonder what the response is to that in Beijing at the moment. So we do hear more willingness for the president to make some exceptions on the Huawei issue. But Larry Kudlow saying not so fast. This isn't a general amnesty by any means. So we do need to get more information on whether or not anything will actually be tweaked in that entity list because technology is going to continue to be a pressing matter as these talks progress. And basically, China will want to make sure that the U.S. side makes good on what was discussed here in Osaka in the same way that the U.S. wants to make sure that China follows through on their promises. And what we got on that front is President Trump did say that China would be buying a tremendous amount of agricultural goods. No doubt that's good news for the farmers in the United States that are not only key to President Trump's voting base, as you know, getting closer into election season here, but they've also been so hard hit by the tariffs and some of the weather patterns in the United States as well. So that will be a relief. But once again, we heard there is a promise, a pledge, but no detail on the exact amount, only that those purchases would start soon. Guys. Uh, excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Well, something that's striking me, good morning to you, Juliana, by the way, we haven't had a chat properly yet. Something that's striking me is the very, very clear market reaction to everything that's going on around the world. Very clear. First half of the year, as you pointed out, the S&P up 17.4%. All 11 sectors in the US are positive year to date. Tech is up 26%. The worst performing, the the, the defensive utilities uh, and healthcare. Healthcare still up 7% as well. The Dow's up 14%. The Nasdaq up 20.7% as well. So there's a very clear move from the markets up. They are very positive. And yet, there is opacity everywhere. As, as Nancy eloquently just pointed out there, we don't know what's going on with China and the US. We don't know what's going on with global growth. In fact, with global growth, Morgan Stanley pointing out, actually, we're going to be are shaving our estimates for 2019 and 2020 growth on the back of G20 because we just can't see policy clarity. It is not enough to remove uncertainty around trade. So quite extraordinary. The markets have decided it's okay to buy and they've done it for one reason, it seems to me, and that is because they think the central banks, once again, have got their backs, whether it's China uh, making policies on a fiscal and monetary front, whether it's the EU and what we've heard from Draghi and, of course, from Mr. Powell as well. Two things I would say to that. One, I think the central bank point is obviously a clear support for markets. And two, this is after a tumultuous Q4. So it's relative to where we ended the year last year. I know a lot of the rally has come since Christmas Eve, but uh, the, the central banks are clearly the, the, the main support here. Let me just say that our guest host in 50 minutes time is going to say this is a big global farce. A farce of prolonged, deeply negative interest rates and the effects it's going to have for industry as well. That's what our guest host uh, in around 50 minutes time. Uh, for more, though, reaction on this weekend's developments, including comments from White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow, head to our website, that's cnbc.com. Well, in addition to the G20 developments, uh, Chinese investors also digesting fresh data. Chinese manufacturing activity unexpectedly dipped into contraction territory in June, according to the Kaishin Private Survey. The figure came in at 49.4 during the month, below analysts' expectations as domestic and export demand weakened. It's the first time in four months that the number has fallen below 50. 
Clashes between uh, protesters and riot police have erupted as demonstrators in Hong Kong take to the streets ahead of a rally marking the anniversary of the territory's return to Chinese rule. Over a million have protested in the past month over a controversial extradition bill that would allow people to be sent to mainland China for trial. Huge crowds are expected for the handover rally, with protesters calling for greater democratic freedoms. Uh, moving on to a completely different story as well, and we're just looking at the arrivals in um, Vienna for what is an absolute key set of meetings as well, a delayed set of meetings as well. Mr. Zangane, Bijan Zangane, has been talking to reporters. He says he doesn't have a problem with necessary oil cut or the extension of it. The problem is unilateralism. Let me give you some context here. Mr. Zangane is worried about the integrity of OPEC and the fact that outside players, i.e. Russia and OPEC plus allies of Saudi, are becoming preeminent in decision making here. He says the problem for OPEC is if OPEC decisions are made outside of OPEC. That is a clear allusion to that uh, duopoly between Russia and Saudi. Uh, questions why OPEC decision was made in Osaka, not Vienna. Again, there were reports of a meeting between Mohammed bin Salman uh, and indeed Vladimir Putin uh, on the sidelines of G20 at which policy uh, would or not been decided. Again, we'll get to Dan Murphy about this one later on. The problem is authority of OPEC. It's under threat and will reject the charter of cooperation with non-OPEC, something Mr. Barkindo, the Secretary General has uh, General has been working very hard on. Okay, coming up on the show, it's a rollover and it's happening. That's according to the Saudi energy minister, whose country has agreed to extend oil supply cuts with Russia. That is exactly the point that Mr. Zangane is making. Uh, we're going to be live from the OPEC Plus meeting in Vienna when we come back. CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit easttechwest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. North Korean media has hailed a meeting between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump, saying both leaders agreed to, quote, push forward productive dialogue on the denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said a fresh round of talks would likely take place in July. Trump became the first sitting U.S. president to enter North Korea on Sunday when he made a surprise visit to the demilitarized zone. Now, Eunice joins us uh, from Beijing with more on this story. Eunice, this was indeed a historical moment uh, for President Trump to enter this zone. But the real question is, does this move the needle on denuclearization? That is exactly the question that a lot of people are asking. But uh, just taking it as, uh, you know, as as an historic event, uh, President Trump uh, did suggest that he might be going over to the demilitarized zone in a tweet. And then he actually took that step over the border into North Korea, the first for a sitting U.S. president. And President Trump seemed quite pleased about it for himself. This is what he said. We 
went and met at the line. And in meeting at the line, I said, would you like me to come across? He said, I would be so honored. And that's the way it worked out. And I guess, from what I understand, this is the first that first time something like that, Mr. Admiral, uh, first time that something like that's happened. Of course, North Korea watchers want to know what happens next. Uh, President Trump has said that this is going to help restart negotiations. Uh, having said that, of course, we have been in this situation before with President Trump and the North Korea, Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, uh, at uh, previous summits. Uh, both, of, uh, both of them have seen a lot of uh, theatrics and, and fanfare, and then uh, uh, the negotiations continue to stall. So uh, President Trump has said that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is going to select a team of negotiators in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo has said that uh, there could be uh, a meeting perhaps in July, that there hasn't been any set schedule so far. And also, of course, uh, the, the big question is whether or not the two had made any headway at all on what has been uh, the main sticking point between North Korea and the United States. And that is that the two do not see eye to eye on uh, the U.S.'s demands to um, have a full denuclearization uh, of North Korea specifically and North Korea wanting economic sanctions lifted. Guys? All right, Eunice, thank you so much for bringing us the latest. Uh, I want to bring you guys now a, a recap of what we've seen over the first half of the year. We are entering now July. Uh, we've concluded, of course, the month of June, and we've seen very strong gains across U.S. markets in the first half of the year. Steve just uh, brought light to this uh, this topic before the break, but it has been a really tremendous uh, several months of trading, supported in large part by central banks and their willingness to support the economy, in particular the Fed, of course. So starting with the S&P 500 is up 17% in the first half of the year. And to put that into historical context for you, that's the best first half since 1997. President Trump just this morning, very quick to tweet about this statistic, uh, calling attention to the fact that the S&P has been so strong. Now, taking a look at some of the other markets in the U.S., let's look at the Dow. It's also been an incredibly strong run for this index, uh, the best first half since 1999. So again, two decades. uh, move for the Dow. But again, this comes after a big retracement in Q4 of last year. And taking a look at the NASDAQ as well, this tech-heavy index is no outlier, up more than 20% in the first half of this year. Those tech stocks continue to be very well bid for in the context of the first half of the year, even though we have seen a little bit of a pullback, a little bit of more volatile trading in recent weeks. Uh, Now, and moving on, let's take a look at oil markets. This has been, of course, a very hot topic over the last several weeks amid escalating tensions in the Middle East. For the six months, uh, it has been a 31% move higher for WTI. Uh, So a a strong move higher for this as well. Uh, In the last month, just to bring it down into the the near term, WTI is 9% higher in the last month, but still down just about 3% on the quarter. Uh, Steve. Thank you very much. Okay, Saudi Arabia and Russia have agreed to extend existing oil supply cuts by six to nine months ahead of the OPEC meeting in Vienna today. Um, Iraq has also endorsed the plan, but it's Iran that could upset the balance due to geopolitical tensions in the region. Speaking at the G20 summit in Osaka, Russian President Vladimir Putin said he had agreed to roll over output cuts of 1.2 million barrels per day. We came to an agreement. We will extend our agreements. Both Saudi Arabia and Russia will be supporting the extension of these agreements in the same volume we had before for a term of six to nine months and maybe up to nine months. 
Speaking to CNBC as he arrived at the OPEC meeting in Vienna, the UAE Energy Minister Suhail Al-Mazrui said he supported the supply cut, but every member's voice should be heard. Each country have the OPEC is is uh, is a uh, an organization that each country can veto a decision. That's why every count or every vote counts, and uh, I think uh, it's it's important that the. Uh, largest two producers uh, among OPEC and non-OPEC talk uh, and uh, the current condition of the market in my view would require an extension and I said that earlier when we were in uh, in uh, in Jeddah for the JMMC we looked at the numbers I don't think they have changed much since uh, since that time therefore uh, my view uh, my technical view is uh, is an extension. So let's get out to Dan now, who joins us with the guest in Vienna. And, and I guess the point that um, Iran is making, perhaps with great legitimacy, is what's the point of OPEC if the decision's already been made? Dan. That's exactly right, Steve, and that's what we've just heard. Hello to you. We're coming to you live from Vienna. And just a few moments ago, Steve, we were in conversation with the Iranian energy minister. He was talking about not only this deal, but also some issues in the region. I'm joined now by RBC's Halima Croft. Halima, this was quite a significant conversation that we had outside the hotel here. No, it was a wide-ranging interview, actually. Yeah, I mean, he gave us 10 minutes, but I think critically he said that he's not essentially opposed to this extension that was talked about between the Russians and the Saudis. No. I mean, the Iranians want higher oil revenue. They need higher prices. So they're not going to oppose an agreement. They would support it going deeper in terms of a cut. But they did declare they're opposed to this charter arrangement, which would formalize the non-OPEC OPEC agreement. That was a big action item for last year's OPEC president, Suhail Marzuri from UAE. He's opposing it. So that's a big sort of significant development that we're probably not going to get a charter if Iran opposes it. OK, so what does that mean for the rest of the OPEC group, do you think? Is it going to cause more friction, more fractures? I think it's something that the heavyweights in OPEC wanted. So I would say the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, UAE, the big non-OPEC player, Russia. This is what they were looking to do. But I think that's precisely why Iran is drawing the line in the sand on this. They basically said they do not want OPEC decisions being made by a small number of countries outside the secretariat. They're looking to take OPEC decisions back to Vienna, back to the OPEC secretariat, and have all members involved in the decision-making process. It was also really interesting to hear him say that Iran will not leave OPEC. However, he said OPEC will die. What do you think he's alluding to? I know. I think he's alluding to the fact that now the decisions are not being taken within OPEC. He also talked about the politicization of OPEC and OPEC essentially being used as a vehicle to punish Iran. So he's basically saying, look, you know, we're not going to leave. We're not going to have our voices silenced in the organization. So we're going to make it difficult for other countries going forward. We also asked him about the situation in the Strait of Hormuz and the Gulf of Oman. We asked him directly if Iran takes any responsibility for the downing of that US drone and the tanker attacks. He, of course, essentially raised the flag and said, look the other way. No, it's basically it's a false flag. Look to the other countries in the region that would benefit from having escalation in terms of tension. So taking no responsibility for that. And the other question what was asked was, is this European vehicle, the in arrangement, with this special purpose vehicle to allow trade 
trade and non-dollars for goods for Iran, is that going to work? And he basically said, if we can't sell our oil, really, what's the purpose of this mechanism? And that's really important because the Iranian nuclear restart is really looming. The Europeans have a 60-day window. It expires on July 7th. What Iran does with its nuclear program will be vitally important in terms of how this development, the regional crisis, develops. And also very important for the United States as well, because perhaps this could raise the issue of a miscalculation. Oh, absolutely. I think the U.S. government, the Trump administration, has two lines in the sand. The nuclear program, President Trump keeps saying they cannot have a bomb or get close to having a bomb. So what does the restart look like? Do they spin the high-speed centrifuges? Do they enrich at higher levels? That will be vitally important. And the second issue is U.S. personnel. So if there's an attack on U.S. personnel that results in loss of life, then the U.S. is going to have a much more escalated response. He's basically saying oil going to Asia through Straits of Hormuz is not nearly as important as the nuclear file and American servicemen. Let's talk about the price impact so far. We've seen oil prices just popping in Asian trade. Clearly, there's a lot of optimism coming out of the G20 on the demand side. But also, do you think that perhaps traders are starting to look at this extension that's being talked about now, and that's also helping to support prices? I mean, we were in the sum of all fears on demand ever since Trump had that tweet about, you know, just starting the trade war. Now that's potentially off-ramping, I think now people focus on the fundamentals of this market. What does the supply picture look like? I mean, Iran has lost 2 million barrels of exports over the course of the year. Venezuelan production continues to drop, and OPEC is rolling this over. So if demand holds up, then we can focus on a tightening supply picture and on all the geopolitical issues that you raise with the Iranian oil minister. Anything else we should be watching as we head into the meeting? No, I actually think what's really important to watch is what are the statements, additional statements coming out of the Iranian foreign minister? Because again, I think the bigger story for oil this summer is going to be how does the crisis in the Middle East unfold? Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.